Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Julia Chatterley in New York. It's 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. And we've just learned the Federal Aviation Administration, or the FAA, has lifted the ground stop that has crippled air travel for the last few hours. What does this mean? Well, it now means flights across the United States are slowly resuming following a major failure of a system at the FAA, or the Federal Aviation Administration. All domestic departures were halted after the system, called the NOTAM, failed. It provides pilots with safety information they need before takeoff. Just over half an hour ago, some flights left Atlanta and Newark airports to mitigate air traffic congestion. Other airports across the country are expected to now follow. But a backlog of departing flights, of course, has left passengers stranded on planes and inside terminals. There have been more than 4,000 delays and nearly 700 cancellations. We're also hearing that flights are still leaving Europe's main airports bound for the United States. President Biden has also been briefed. The White House press secretary saying there is no evidence of a cyber attack, at least at this point. Point. Richard Quest joins me now, I think, for some vital context. Richard, a huge relief that the FAA still now have this system up and running and the information is beginning to flow. It clearly could have been worse, but I think the fragility of the system and the ensuing impact are evident, to, very evident too. Yes, and that's going to be the, uh, the, 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 the bit that needs to be looked at. Why did this NOTAM system fail? NOTAM stands for Notice to Airmen. And it is basically every single pilot, before they get on the plane and head off, will receive the NOTAMs for that particular route. It can be anything from runway closures, work being done on taxiways, uh, issues with air traffic control en route. They are constantly updated not to read the NOTAMs or not to pay attention to them for your route is negligent indeed. So for a US system where aviation is so vast, if the NOTAM system goes wrong, then Julia, the issue becomes ensuring you don't fall through the cracks. Is there something about the flight that you're about to take as a pilot that you need to know? A runway closure, instrument landing system not working, this or that or the other, change of frequencies, all of that sort of stuff is in the NOTAMs. It's interesting though, President Biden very quickly out saying, aircraft that are in the air currently are safe to land. Of course, they sort of cleared the airspace as best they could by grounding all flights, to your point, that that simply weren't considered at this stage safe to take off. What do you do in that situation then for pilots that are in the air? You you go back to manual and you just feed them information that they're, they're clear to land? Yes. I mean, essentially, yes. So first of all, any plane that's in the air will have received the relevant NOTAMs for that flight before they departed. Now, if there was to be something en route, 
Well, they'd be notified by that. So if a runway was suddenly out of action or there was an air traffic control problem, they would have been notified en route that this was the situation. Yes, I think there's always an element of, you know, would they have been following up NOTAMs on the way? Possibly, but not likely. I think the reality is if you're in the air, you're going to be told what the situation is, where you are and where you need to be. And by the way, the NOTAM system, which, of course, other countries have their own versions of. So in Britain, it'll be the CAA. In France, it'll be the regulatory authority there. They will have been issuing NOTAMs for their airports and their airspace. And the whole lot comes together when a pilot is, when a, a, an airline's flight planning puts the route together and gives all the documentation now, of course, in the digital handbook or in the, the digital briefcase to the pilot. You said the magic word here, Richard, which is digital. And I was going to ask you, it needs to be a sophisticated system. It clearly is. But how recent and how recently has it been upgraded? I think you know far better than I that the FAA has long said it needs more money for system upgrades and to make greater progress in this kind of system. Are these the questions that are now going to be asked? And I think the obvious adjoinder to that is the risk of, of, of cyber threats. And of course, the White House has come out at least at this stage and said there's no evidence of that. But I think the vulnerability here has been uh, unfortunately deeply underscored. There's, this is a valid point because the FAA has received quite a lot of it, extra cash for its updating of the air traffic control system uh, across the United States. Here, it's going to be a question of was there something wrong, that, like the Southwest situation where they hadn't updated, or is this just the natural vicissitudes of life where somebody unplugs something they shouldn't have done and that all the systems were in place, but you couldn't have foreseen that this was going to happen? You know, um, the, the, the oldest system of all, stuff happens. And what they will be looking at is why this happened. Could it have been avoided or is it just one of those things? Yeah, as we all know. The more digitally savvy and, and the more digital pieces of equipment that you get exactly. and the more controlled it is by computers, the risk of a switch exactly. being pulled or a plug working loose. Um, you know, remember British Airways, <laughs> which had a massive failure of its systems. Why? Because a contractor switched off the, right. the power supply. I mean, these are the things you try to avoid with big signs saying, don't do this. But if somebody does it, you need to look again. We don't know with this one. I have to say... In the grand scheme of air traffic things that can go wrong, the failure of the NOTAM system, what the FAA did was an abundance of caution, to use that right. wonderful phrase. They stopped with a ground uh, thing. But, you know, was there a massive risk? Was it likely to be catastrophic? It was, this is way down on that list, in a sense. Yeah, and that's really important too. And if it is a sign saying don't touch this button, they need a bigger don't one, I think. Don't touch it. <laughs> yeah. Hands off. Richard, yeah. thank you. Thank you. Richard Christ there. And shares of the major US airlines have come under a bit of pressure too pre-market amid today's travel uncertainties. Already challenged, of course, Southwest taking the biggest hit, as you might imagine. That's set to fall just over 2%. Some other US carriers, as you can see, on track for some minor losses here. If we stay at this stage and it's up and running and, and stable once again, you'd expect some of that to uh, to filter out, I think, as the session progresses. In the meantime, here's a look at U.S. stocks poised for a smooth takeoff overall, with futures pointing to a fourth straight day of gains for tech. The European major solidly higher, too, and continuing 
their strong January runs. The German DAX and the French CAC Couronne are up more than 7% so far in 2023, easily outperforming their Wall Street rivals. The UK FTSE, in fact, less than 2% away now from record highs. That said, of course, global markets caution still abounds. JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon saying the odds of the Federal Reserve hiking rates too higher than expected 6% this year are now 50-50, so even odds there. Concern, too, that earnings estimates have not yet come down fast enough to reflect the economic reality. We'll get profits from the U.S. financial giants out on Friday and, of course, their views on the outlook, too. In the meantime, the World Bank also warning this week that the global economy will see growth of under 2% this year. That's well below previous forecasts, as we were discussing on the show yesterday. World Bank President David Malpass will join us later in the show to discuss the details of that report. In the meantime, let's move on and get it to Ukraine. An intense battle continues for the eastern town of Solidar. The Russian Defence Ministry claiming its military has now blockaded the town from the north and the south. Scott McLean joins us now from Kyiv. Scott, a whole host of views here. Ukraine saying they haven't taken control. The militia group, the Wagner group saying that they had taken control. What do we know, at least at this stage? Yeah, Julia, look, it is extremely difficult to get an accurate picture of what is happening, but I think it is safe to say that there is still intense fighting happening there at this moment. As you mentioned, the Wagner chief insists that the entire territory of the town of Solidar, this strategic town in eastern Ukraine, is under their control. But not even the Kremlin is agreeing with that assessment just yet. They've said that things are trending in a positive direction, but they've not said that they have captured this town yet. This would be really their first big win on the battlefield in months and months. So for the Russian side, it cannot come soon enough to try to get a little bit of the momentum back from the Ukrainians who seem to have had it all over the last few months. We have got word from the Russian military recently, as you said, they are claiming that uh, that paratroopers have blocked off the north and the south part of the city. They also say that they have jets striking uh, Ukrainian strongholds and they have their troops fighting um, uh, building to building on the streets of that town as well. The Ukrainians, as they, as you said, they may be regrouping, but they insist that, look, the Russians have not taken this territory just yet. Uh, we also heard yesterday, Julia, from a soldier who is on the front line in Solidar. He spoke to us late yesterday, and he said that, look, it is difficult to know two things in particular. First, how many people have died because so many troops on both sides have been killed and second where precisely the front lines are at any given point because there is such a large gray area in the town where fighting is taking place and where both sides are claiming that they're taking control the ukrainians say that the russians have been able to um, replace their troops very quickly this soldier says that the ukrainians are also doing the same in fact the soldiers are coming in so quickly that he can't even he hasn't even had time to memorize their call signs just yet what i think is especially interesting is yesterday we heard from the ukrainian defense ministry saying look we're not ruling out the possibility that we may have to withdraw or pull our troops back in the name of preserving life and limb this soldier seems to think that that will happen at some point he's just wondering why the order to do that hasn't happened already in order to make sure that these troops can live to fight another day and potentially retake Solidar if, in fact, the Russians do manage to capture it today or in the coming days, Julia. Mm. Scott, thank you for that report there. Scott McClay. 
Right, still ahead, a sobering report from the World Bank on the state of the global economy. The group's president joins us after this and we'll have the latest, of course, as planes begin taking off across the United States following that massive systems outage. Stay with us. That's all coming up. Welcome back and to a global economy perilously close to recession. That's according to the latest assessment from the World Bank. The group now estimates global growth of just 1.7% this year. That's a substantial drop from its previous targets. And it sees particular challenges for emerging and developing nations that have already been hit hard by the pandemic and rising interest rates, among many other challenges. Elevated inflation, aggressive central bank policy to fight those rising prices, deteriorating financial conditions, and of course, Russia's war in Ukraine are all weighing on growth. The group also warned that any new adverse development could push the global economy into recession. That would be the second within a decade, and that hasn't happened in more than 80 years. Joining us now, David Malpass, president of the World Bank Group. Oh, David, I wish you were coming on to talk to us about happier things. But the truth is this report is incredibly concerning, and it's just one more event or knock to push the global economy into recession. Welcome and tell us more. Thank you. Hi, Julia. I I wish it were happier Mm. things. You know, the world's uh, uh, facing these big challenges. They're coming one after another, and it hits people in the weaker countries the most. They're not getting the capital flow that's needed, inflow to to, uh, create new jobs. Uh, And in fact, uh, there's There's really a capital drain going on from the developing countries, and it comes at a time when the advanced economies are not really robustly growing. And that's the challenge. As as the developed economies continue to raise interest rates, that sucks money out of those developing and emerging countries because on a risk-reward basis, investors think they're better off putting their money perhaps in, in developed markets instead. This also caught my attention. You said, look, what we're looking at here for the emerging and developing nations is a multi-year period of slower growth that compounds the reversals that we've already seen in things like education, health and essential infrastructure. David, this is incredibly worrying. How should the global economy, the global nations around the world, the richer nations and institutions like the World Bank respond? Uh, they they should think about putting more resources into the developing world. You know, that's always a challenge for taxpayers. Why do I do right. that? But there's benefits to them from doing that. Uh, but then I think even b- much bigger than that is their own growth, their own production uh, being more robust. And then very importantly is this capital allocation that's been going on now for many years where the advanced economies are borrowing so much, their governments are borrowing so much, that it leaves not not much in terms of capital available for the rest of the world, for the private sectors and for the the poorer countries. So one of the big things would be making good utilization of the government spending in the advanced economies in order to free up resources. You raise such an important point, though, and that is for leaders in the richer nations to have to explain to their citizens, particularly at a moment like this, where everybody's facing price pressures, everybody's struggling with inflation, paying energy bills. How do you make the point that actually if we provide money to some of the poorer nations, it benefits everyone? I think people 
understand that intellectually, but then from a political standpoint, it's hard to make that uh, uh, that that allocation of money outside your own borders. Uh, so it's a leap, it's a somewhat a leap of faith or a recognition that uh, that uh, if if uh, if countries get poorer, uh, if the, if there's more poverty, that's going to cause refugees, which has a direct impact. It also takes away markets that would be available for the advanced economies. So understanding that. And then I think also finding practical ways out of the uh, excess spending. One one way that's talked about it at the highest levels in the, uh, in the uh, multinational meetings that I go to, people talk about the importance of if you have subsidies for certain parts of your population, have them be targeted uh, mm. to the people that really need it and have them be time bound. Don't, don't have them go on year after year, but let them wind down when they're not needed anymore. And that frees up resources for everybody else. Yeah, it's such a vital point. Targeted policies towards the most vulnerable. And, and it, you, you do illustrate it in this report, too. Um, there is a perhaps a counter to this. And that came from Goldman Sachs this week that was suggesting that, in their view, at least, they believe the eurozone can avoid recession. They'd already said over the holiday period that they believe the United States actually can, uh, can avoid recession. David, what do you make of that? And is that sort of already factored in here? Uh, you know, forecasts are, are hard to do, and, and uh, those may be right. <laughs> I, I would say let's focus on what are the key variables. One is energy prices. If you thought today that oil prices were going to go higher again, uh, that would mean that the central banks will be trying to lean against it with rate hikes, and you mm. probably won't get those recoveries that, uh, that you were just mentioning, uh, and vice versa. If, uh, uh, if energy prices come down, that frees up space for growth elsewhere. Another key variable is how quickly can uh, China push through the COVID uh, infections and and go back to its massive uh, production uh, capabilities. That helps the world supply chain. So, And of course, the, the Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine is still ongoing a year, a year in. I, I met with President Zelensky in, in uh, Munich just prior to the invasion a year ago, and no one uh, no one dreaded uh, the idea that a year later there would still be a war going on. So that's a key variable itself. I mean, you've mentioned so many wild cards. Um, the risk of perhaps higher rates than expected. JP Nyman, the um, JP Morgan CEO, mentioned that potentially U.S. rates rising more than six percent. But actually, the one that I want to hone in on is China, David. Just from what you're hearing, whether anecdotally or that the data that you're collecting, um, how much? risk concern is there around the economic outlook for, for China at this moment? And I appreciate it's incredibly difficult to get a sense at this moment and obviously very much relates to, to the extent of the spread of, of the virus. How much uncertainty around the economic outlook there? Uh, we're forecasting into a dynamic environment. You know, they right. had those rippling sh shutdowns and really lockdowns that occurred during the middle of 2022 and even into September. Uh, th and so that really was slowing their economy. You know, we saw their second quarter growth in 2022 at a at a, a minus two percent. Uh, uh, so it was a it was a severe shrinkage of the economy. Then they came back some, and then it fell again into lockdown. 
down. So uh, what 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 I hear, I, and I talked with someone just uh, night before last there who is physically there and said it looks as if people are responding well enough. Uh, you know, many many people being infected with COVID, but then finding their way through it. And the uh, health system so far uh, uh, holding up, at least in most parts of the country. So if that's the case, and then the factories uh, begin to re-increase their output, uh, there, there is the upside uh, upside possibilities on their growth rate. And China, you know, is the world's biggest, uh, second biggest economy, uh, not nearly as big as the U.S., but bigger than than really any any of the rest of the world. Uh, and so their impact matters both on the supply side and on the demand side. So both of those might outperform, you know, in a positive way from the forecast, and that would lift our glo- global growth. Yes, not not the biggest yet, but they're certainly working on it. David, we've managed to find, I think, a bright spot to wrap up the conversation on and fingers crossed the biases to the upside with their recovery and economic growth as well. So great to have you on the show as always. Thank you, the president. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. We'll speak again soon. All right. In the meantime, Japan and South Korea criticizing China's move to stop issuing visas to their citizens. Beijing made the decision in retaliation for COVID travel restrictions imposed by the two neighbors. It's not clear whether China will place visa suspensions on other nations, too. It comes as Chinese tourists starts to travel again after the country reopened its borders following three years of tight restrictions. Mark Stewart is in Hong Kong and has been exploring the impact. China is open, and that means tourists can travel the world and come to cities, including Hong Kong. And once they are here, spend money. A potential jolt at a time when many economies around the world are struggling. This is cookie. It's a very famous cookie in Hong Kong. Kiki Young is packing for herself and others. This is a, a gift for my father. She's heading home to China with a specially purchased suitcase just to carry her gifts from her base in Hong Kong. She's been away for a year after stringent COVID restrictions prevented her from seeing family and friends in China. They even list a, a list for me to, what to buy and what they want. Young represents an economic jolt that will be felt around the globe now that travel restrictions to and from China have been lifted. So there will be extra demand in this world that haven't been seen for three years in, in, within China and also for the rest of the world. China is the world's second largest economy with a population of more than one billion people. Asia beauty store giant Sasa is hoping to benefit. Just think about the, the number of consumers. I mean, the number of consumers and the increase in spending power that they have, uh, the propensity to spend is quite massive. And then there's the travel component. In Thailand, a welcome banner at the airport as Chinese tourists begin to visit once again, promoting a lasting friendship between the two nations. The government even held a special ceremony for Chinese visitors as the first flight arrived. Popular attractions like the Erawan Shrine and the Golden Cabaret are preparing for crowds after the COVID drought. A Thai official hopes the new arrivals will revive the economy. Yet in some parts of the world, the welcome is far from warm. More than a dozen countries, including Japan, are now testing travelers from China, which China is protesting. In Milan, Italy airport workers sanitize luggage. 
And in Brussels, Belgium, wastewater from a jet is removed for analysis. All of this as China's COVID restrictions disappear while the case count is exploding and hospitals are overflowing. As for Kiki, there's something that won't fit in her suitcases. Precious time with her loved ones. This is not just about spending money. The opening of travel to and from China means face-to-face meetings instead of video calls. A chance for business leaders to rebuild business relationships that may have been tarnished during the pandemic. Mark Stewart, CNN, Hong Kong. Okay, coming up here on First Move, the aftermath of the major FAA systems outage. We're live from one of the world's busiest airports. Next. Welcome back to First Move with the latest on today's flight chaos across the United States. Earlier, all departures across the country were grounded following a major computer outage. The White House, though, says there is no evidence it was a cyber attack. But of course, the travel disruptions continue. So far, more than 4,300 flight delays have been reported, according to the flight tracking site FlightAware. Amra Walker joins us now from Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport. Great to have you on the show with us. The good news is that flights are going to be back up and running and re-established, but I have to say it looks pretty quiet behind you. What are people there saying? Yeah, yeah, you're right, Julia. It's been quite pretty much uh, of the morning. Look, it's a slower travel day. Uh, but the good news is, according to the FAA, here at Atlanta International Airport, the flights began resuming uh, about an hour ago. Um, and I do want to make clear, too, uh, compared to the chaos and the messiness we saw over the holiday season, uh, this is not what we're seeing here. As you say, uh, there are really no lines, but there are delays. People are being inconvenienced. If you look at the departure board behind me, uh, there's a handful of delays up there. There's also some cancellations, very few, I must add. A lot of those cancellations happening at Southwest Airlines. I think I saw one at United at around 9 a.m. Um, but look, I spoke with several passengers. Passengers, people are pretty calm, um, and that's because they're dealing with, at least the folks that I spoke with, two to three hour delays. I did speak with one young gentleman who is supposed to get to New York today in time for a funeral. It doesn't look like he's going to make it. Listen what he had to say. It was supposed to be like 11 or 12 when we landed. Now it's going to be two, and we're missing the first week for a funeral. You're missing a funeral? Yes, ma'am. Right now. So what do you do when you get on the ground? Uh, I mean, there's hope today. There's two, luckily. So um, that's where we're going to go. The second one. I spoke with another woman earlier this morning who had a flight at nine o'clock and then she her flight was delayed until about noon. Then she decided to get onto a different flight to take a different route. That flight was at 2 p.m. And then, of course, that got delayed until six. So she said, look, I'm not going to wait here and, you know, uh, be ping ponged back and forth as according to her schedule. So she said, I'm going to just go home and wait it out and hopefully things will get back online soon. So, again, the FAA saying flights have begun resuming about an hour ago here. Of course, the backlog how long that will take to things get back completely to normal. Uh, unclear, hopefully, let's hope, uh, by this afternoon, Julia. Yeah, and well, we hope that gentleman gets to where he needs to go to and everybody else as soon as possible. Emma Walker there. Thank you so much. Now for more on this, CNN safety analyst David Susie joins us now. David, how many decades do you have in aviation? And have you ever known this NOTAM system to fail in this manner or, or to suffer some kind of system outage like this. What was your gut I've instinct when seen, you heard it? Yeah. 
uh, I, I, the first thing that came to my mind was cyber attack because I was very intimately mm. familiar with this system and the, all of the FAA systems and how they're protected. So the first thing that came to my mind was the possibility of some kind of cyber attack because not only have we had this situation, but also the Southwest Airlines situation most recently uh, that had a very similar shutdown. So what we're trying to find out now, and I'm trying to get more information about that to see if that's a possibility. But I don't think that's what it was at this point. I think it was just a system capacity issue and uh, the communication side of the system. Yeah, I mean, the press secretary for the White House, we will illustrate, said at least at this stage, no evidence of a, of a cyber attack. But I think um, right. a lot of people will um, concur with where your thoughts were headed at, at that stage. How confident are you now? The FAA have said, OK, flights can start taking off. Um, I know you have some concerns. Yeah, I definitely have some concerns about how they did that. I go to my website now and look for the notums. And uh, what it's saying on there on the site is that they may not have the most current information on there. And then they ask you to click on a disclaimer that said, I have read this information. So what concerns me about that is now what they've done is they've put the responsibility back directly on the pilot and the dispatchers to find out if there are any abnormalities in the systems. And there are ways for them to find that out. The challenge is that it really delays that system and they have to check on every flight 25 miles north and south or on each side of their flight path to see if there's any abnormalities along that flight path and, and with the airports as well on either end. So there's a lot of information that they have to check and that's going to continue to cause delays. Yeah. And just to be clear, uh, no pilots taking off unless they're confident that they have all the information that they need. The problem, to your point, is that just getting access to that information without this NOTAM system just means far more delays, perhaps, than we're even looking at. Exactly. At I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah. OK. How, in your experience and your understanding of the need for upgrades, the need for greater, perhaps, system support, um, how outdated is this system that it seems everybody needs, everybody uses? Yeah. Well, this system is tied to many other systems. So the challenge is trying to keep the technology up to date. You have plateaus of technology where the demand increases, but the technology lags behind. And you always right. have that. However, with this FAA system, because it taps into so many different systems for information that any one of those links could cause the whole system to go down. And I think that's what's happened here. And that's why it's going to be so difficult to troubleshoot it, to try to figure out which of the input systems, the external systems that the NOTAM system relies on failed. And that's where the, it's just, it's incredibly complex. The system is immeasurably complex and very difficult to maintain, let alone to improve as things go forward. So the, uh, the budget constraints, mm -hmm. a lot of other issues come into play but uh, it, it is a challenge for certain. David, um, you mentioned the Southwest Airlines debacle at the same time, and we've had two in the space of, what, just a few weeks now. The U.S. Transport Secretary, Pete Buttigieg, was instantly out there saying, look, they're in communication with the FAA. We know the White House was updated as well. Um, does there need to be a, a, perhaps a step back here and, and a refocus on what kind of funding is required and conversations about um, system updates? quite frankly, with something yep. so pivotal. Yeah. 
Yeah, with, without telling you how to build a watch and getting into the details of it, I was actually a, a technical uh, officer for contracting for the internet, um, for the uh, IT systems at the FAA while I was an inspector there. And so try to get the Congress to approve that. It's, it has to come out of two different kinds of budget, budgets. So you have facilities and equipment budgets, you have routine maintenance budgets or ops budgets, and those two things have to work together. And so right now they have an interim FAA administrator. And that I think is where the biggest problem is, is their leadership has changed so many times and has mm. been so different and they're interim. They're not actually appointed and stay for a long period of time. And these systems take three, four, five years to maintain to develop and maintain. So without constant leadership across the board, that's where these systems falter because they each one of these administrators has to have their kind of own way of getting it done. And then once they start doing that, and then they're replaced with someone else whenever there's an administration change or something like that. So I think there needs to be some drastic improvement in how the leadership is maintained in the FAA. And that will that will start to smooth out this budgeting debacle of, of how much money do we have to respond to these new technological advances. Yeah, two very important warning shots, I think, in as many as two months. Um, David, yeah. thank you for your wisdom. David Susie there, CNN yeah. Safety Analyst. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, coming up after the break, oh dear, oh dear, it's the rise of the machines, or is it John Deere is here talking autonomous tractors, smart spraying, and much more. Stay with us, that's next. Welcome back to First Move and an unexpected and unfortunate, let's call it that, Wednesday wake-up call for U.S. travelers' flights across the United States now slowly getting back to normal after a massive systems outage that grounded virtually all U.S. flights earlier this morning, as we've been discussing. Stay tuned to CNN for updates throughout the day today. But first, no turbulence in sight on Wall Street, with stocks on the rise across the board in early trade. As you can see, investors hoping to see a market-friendly consumer inflation read on Thursday. So that's tomorrow. That could ultimately help the Federal Reserve ease up on the pace of rate hikes. Gains, too, across the Asia session. The Hang Seng driven by China's reopening now up more than 8% this year. Morgan Stanley saying investors still underappreciate the economic ramifications of China's massive pivot away from that zero COVID policy. And that optimism over Chinese reopenings helping boost the price of economically sensitive copper too. It's up more than 1% today and currently trading at seven-month highs. Now, John Deere has been showcasing the latest machinery and technology in farming and construction for today and for the future. It says more than half a million of its connected machines are helping users gather and share critical data that allow them to work smarter. Just as an example, a fertilizer system called Exact Shot. It can cut the amount of chemicals used by more than 60%, the companies say, saving farmers millions and helping the environment too. The company, which is cutting costs by using three 3D printed parts displayed its wares at the Consumer Electronics Show, including an autonomous tractor. Much to discuss. Jamie J. Hindman is the company's chief technology officer, and he joins us now. Jamie, fantastic to have you with us. I think you're proving that um, it's a myth, actually, that agriculture remains in the relative dark ages, at least relative perhaps to other industries. And that's essential because we have to feed more people and we have to be kinder to the planet. 
Absolutely, Julia. It's great to be with you this morning. You're exactly right. We have 8 billion people on the planet today. We're heading towards 10 billion, and we have to feed all those people and do it with fewer inputs, uh, less land, less chemical, less fertilizer. And technology is really uh, a, a key ingredient to the answer to that problem. Okay, I feel like we've teased it, so you have to explain it now. Exact shot. Reducing sure. fertilizer use by more than 60%. I mean, we're, I suppose we're talking about better for the environment, but also a huge cost saving potentially too. Talk me through this technology and, and who's utilizing it today. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a technology that we'll make available to uh, farmers that plant corn in particular. It's not uncommon to put starter fertilizer down with the corn seed. Uh, but it's often state of the art today is to, to put that fertilizer not just where the corn seeds are, but in between the seeds as well, where it really does very little use uh, or has very little effect on the overall health of the plant and the starting of the plant. So exact shot really gives us the ability to time the fertilizer dosage to exactly where the seed is planted and only where the seed is planted. That's how we reduce the amount of fertilizer without impacting the vitality of the plant. Yeah, and vitally important, I think, over the last 12 months when we've seen fertilizer prices soar so aggressively. No if you doubt. can be far more efficient with what you're using, then it, it makes sense to me. The other thing that caught my attention, see and spray technology. And I read that over the same area, if you tried to match the level of sensing and processing that this system can do, then it would take 6,000 people to do the equivalent. Just explain this too. Yeah, sure. So the sprayer technology, see and spray technology is really this ability to put computer vision on a 120 foot long boom of a self-propelled sprayer that travels at 12 miles an hour in the field. So it couple, covers roughly uh, two soccer pitches per minute, uh, give, wow. give or take. Uh, and, and it does that uh, while inspecting the ground with these uh, camera rays that are across the boom and using computer vision and machine learning to separate the weeds from the healthy plants. And then we only spray the weeds because that's the only uh, place in the field that the chemical, the herbicide is actually useful. So we avoid spraying roughly two thirds, uh, depending upon the field, roughly two thirds of the, of the herbicide on the field. You know, it's interesting. Um, I'm heading to Davos next week and in the summer I was um, very much focused on food security issues and I had a number of conversations with farmers and they were farmers of, of various different sizes. But in certain cases they were saying to me, look, we're just one bad harvest away from being unable to, to pay loans, to continue to pay our workers. I, I look at this and the benefits that this would bring, particularly for perhaps the larger uh, landowning farmers or, or rent tenant farmers. Um, but it's that decision to invest in the technology in the first place. What kind of costs are we are we talking about here, Jamie? Because we also have to make this accessible to as many people as possible. Yeah, no, no doubt, Julia, that's true. I think if you look at the farmer's balance sheet, if you look at their P&L statements, you know, the, their top costs on the farm are their inputs. It's their seed costs, their right. fertilizer costs, and their chemical costs. So this technology that we're talking about is really focused on reducing what is the overall largest portion of their cost in their business. And, and we do that intentionally, right? That's where it can make the most impact for them from a business perspective, but it's also to the point that you've already made uh, really good for the environment. This is a win-win. It's a win for the grower. It's certainly a win for the environment as well. Yeah, it's funny. Um, one of the other things that, that also caught my attention was um, some of the comments that you'd made on electrification. And you look at the size of this machinery and the amount of time that it needs to be running for. And in all the discussions that we have on the show with this technology, um, not only the weight of, of the batteries that are required in this case, but the charging requirements. And I know you've sort of said in the past, look, electrification in, in this regard, it doesn't really work. And we, and we have to be having 
perhaps a far more intense conversation about the use of biofuels going forward. It also obviously plays uh, to your market and to your business too. But um, just talk to me about those two things and, and what we need to understand, particularly for the agriculture sector. Yeah, sure. Joe, we're, we're pro-electrification. It, it's a, a good technology also. It just isn't a one-size-fits-all technology, I think. So in many of our applications, especially the higher power applications, we just don't have the power density and electrification to meet the needs of the growers, of the customers uh, in those applications. And so it, it doesn't necessarily work in all applications. We did uh, at CES unveil an electric, full battery electric excavator as an example of a place where it does certainly make good sense uh, from an application perspective. But in some of those large agricultural machines that we've talked about, we do look at biofuels as a um, a, a, a bridge strategy to maybe a, an electric future, perhaps as technology changes, but as a means to reduce carbon intensity of farming today. Uh, and not just for new machines, importantly, it's probably uh, worthwhile to note that our current machines are capable of consuming fully renewable diesel. So we could have an impact not just on new equipment that, that John Deere might sell, but on the complete installed base as well. And if you look at that aggregated uh, impact, it's it's really significant. That's why we're excited about biofuels. Yeah, there's not one solution. I think that's the message here as well. There's many um, right. ways that we can approach this. Um, one of the sort of most important, I think, announcements that I've seen from the company was an agreement with um, farm representatives here in the United States to give them the right to repair mm. their own tractors, the other agricultural uh, machinery with with their own parts and not necessarily use yours as well. Um, I was just looking as we were looking at some of those videos there and the sort of digitization and the computer screens that are on display as well. Um, how does that work in practice as things get more digitized? Does that apply to, to software too? And, um, and, and sort of who then has the risk if things go wrong? D- do they have that yeah. if they fixed it themselves? It's a great question, Julie. So, so you're referencing an agreement we, we signed with the American Farm Bureau uh, Association just a few days ago. And, and it's really, a, I think, um, uh, reaffirms our longstanding commitment to the industry to make available uh, the tools, the information necessary for farmers to repair uh, their own equipment. Uh, and we've, we've had that commitment in the past. This sort of solidifies that. And I think importantly, uh, opens up the dialogue and the conversation with farmers through the American Farm Bureau Association uh, that allows us to start to answer some of those questions that you just asked. Uh, where should this go? Where does it need to go? What are the true needs of the farmers with respect to repair? And how can deer uh, assist in that journey moving forward? Yeah, I just feel like it's the beginning of a conversation, not the end of it. Sure. Um, Jamie, great to have you on the show. I know we'll talk again soon. Um, it's a fascinating business you've got going on. Thank you, Julia. Jamie Appreciate Hinden. it. Thank you. The chief tech officer there at Deer & Company. OK, coming up, one Japanese retailer is giving its employees a boost in the face of rising inflation. We'll explain next. Welcome back to First Move. People in Japan are suffering their biggest drop in living standards in nearly a decade. Now, one retail giant is doing something about it. Fast Retailing, the owner of the fashion chain Uniqlo, is raising wages to help staff cope with the rising cost of living. It says store-based staff, along with workers at headquarters and in corporate functions, will get pay rises of up 
to 40%. Japan's prime minister recently urged businesses to pay their staff more, saying the economy could fall into stagflation if wages continue to lag behind those price increases. Paula Monica joins me now. Wow, I'm stumbling over my words because when you talk about a 40% wage increase, um, you're talking about adding some stickiness to inflation. But I think what we have to bear in mind here is the fact that wages have, what, stagnated in Japan for the last three decades more. Exactly. I mean, we've talked uh, incessantly uh, uh, in economic and market circles about Japan's lost decade, which you could accurately describe, Julia, as plural, lost decades. And now Japan, like the rest of the world, is facing major inflationary pressures. And as a result, Uniqlo's parent company realizing that they need to boost wages to make their pay for store workers as well as managers more competitive with what other retailers around the globe are paying right now because everyone is facing those same inflation pressures. It's not just Japan, of course. Yeah, but this is a huge jolt, I think, for Japan Inc. And obviously what the prime minister had been saying, look, we actually need to respond to this. It comes, of course, just a couple of months before those annual spring Uh, labor negotiations that we know take place in Japan as well. But I can't imagine uh, other big companies in Japan can respond to this extent, surely. I doubt that they would uh, boost pay up as much as 40%. That is a staggering, phenomenal amount, Julia. But you're correct. You would likely see other Japanese companies, particularly ones that are consumer facing and have retail stores with workers that are on the front lines, they probably will be forced to boost their pay. Any you know lower paying business like retail, there's going to be more pressure there than maybe with some of the tech giants in Japan that might already be paying a little bit higher wages for those white collar jobs. Yeah, makes perfect sense to me. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. Now, before we go, just to update you on the airport situation across the United States, the FAA has lifted its ground stop order that now allows flights to depart following an outage of one of its key safety systems. As we've been discussing throughout the show, it's not known what caused the problem, which has led to more than 4,000 flight delays and nearly 700 cancellations. That's according to flight tracker FlightAware. Stay with CNN throughout the day for the absolute latest on what's going on with flights across the nation. And finally, it's been a busy week already here on First Move. The market bulls beating back the stock market bear. Thursday's big U.S. inflation numbers, the hope is they won't scare. A princely memoir flying off the shelves, not a copy it seems to spare. Plus, no mega millions winner. Me and my team are here to stay. Sorry, producer Bob Cookson, but happy birthday for tomorrow anyway. The mega millions jackpot now reaching a head-spinning $1.3 billion, the second largest prize ever. The next draw will be held on Friday night. Bob will surely be playing and we wish you good luck, Bob. That said, I certainly expect you back on the job on Monday. He'd miss the madness, but happy birthday. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN and Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next and I'll see you tomorrow.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.